Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Knife Critical Care. I'm Brittany Bankhead from Texas Tech University, along with Ryan Dumas and Caroline Park at UT Southwestern. This morning, we're going to discuss a critical care topic that is full of debate and not a lot of evidence-based guidelines to pull from, which is the critical care management of the brain-dead organ donor. Also, in a BTK critical care first, we've got a great resource of information and a very special guest, Dr. Ashley McGinnity from the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. She will be providing some expert feedback and commentary on some of the scenarios we have outlined today. Dr. McGinnity, can you tell us a little bit about the unit that you run and the resources that you provide your region? And thank you again for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, I'm a trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. I serve as one of the directors of the donor management unit called the Center for Life. For a little over two years, we've been transferring in brain dead donors from our OPO, which is an organ procurement organization region, to a centralized unit for pre-procurement management. This allows us to really optimize the resources and critical care management of each donor to optimize that wonderful gift of donation and to get an increased organ yield per donor. Awesome. Dr. Mayini, uh, welcome again, and thanks for having you. Uh, thanks for being on with us today. It's really great to have you. So um, let's jump right in. Uh, something that invariably kind of comes up when we manage with these manage these brain-dead patients is access. Uh, so what sort of lines and what sort of monitoring do these patients need? I remember as a trainee, frequently these patients, uh, you'd get called and asked to help place access. So central access, arterial line monitoring. So is that really still the case? Is that what we're still doing? Um, for example, if you have a patient with two good functional PIVs and a reliable cuff pressure, uh, are these patients always going to get lined up in, in a unit? Yes. So we assure that all donors still have central access and an arterial line and then perform that bronchoscopy right after declaration. The lines really help with critical care management of these patients that are at risk for instability and have a high use of pressors, which I know we'll get to. Um, but they can also provide objective variables such as the frequent ABGs that are required by transplant centers, CVP, BAL results, and all of these objective measures are used to help the transplant centers really make decisions on organ acceptance. We don't routinely place swans at our institution, but occasionally they are requested by the transplant teams that are evaluating the heart. Most recently, most seem to be using right heart cath data instead. Awesome. All right. So let's jump into our clinical scenarios. So Caroline, let's start with you. Let's say you have a 33-year-old male who had a motorcycle collision two days ago and has been declared brain dead and was a registered organ donor. He's not on any analogous sedation, but his blood pressures have been consistently low with MAPS in the mid-50s and all other etiologies of shock have been ruled out. How are you approaching this patient? I love these scenarios. So this is a really complex scenario. Unfortunately, it's not that uncommon. Um, of course, the first thing I have in mind as a trauma surgeon, especially in polytrauma patients, is going to be hemorrhage, hemorrhage, and hemorrhage, right? So I'm going to run down the list, just evaluating all their injuries, making sure there's no bleeding from any of those sources, but then thinking about other signs of other causes of shock as well, right? Like could he have blunt cardiac injury, so cardiogenic shock, neurogenic spinal shock, or adrenal insufficiency. Um, I think sepsis would be a little uncommon post, you know, hospital day two. So the timing is really important. 
So, you know, once I've ruled that out, I've ruled out other sources, I think the priorities still remain the same. And that is to maintain adequate perfusion. And in this case, it's to the heart and the rest of the organs. Um, and so in the patient that's actively herniating, I think we've all seen this patient, they're extremely unstable. They're having arrhythmias, their pressures are very labile, um, and they're often on multiple vasopressors at that point. But my first one I'm going to reach for is actually vasopressin, which I realize is a little counterintuitive because we often reach for levofed first um, for, uh, you know, for the more common sources of shock, more like sepsis. Of course, we talked about in different podcasts, but Dr. McGinnity, what are your thoughts on vasopressin versus levofed? Dr. Park, I totally agree with your initial thoughts. I think it's a good reminder to look for other reasons for shock. The brain dead donor had a precipitating event that led to their diagnosis. These are polytrauma patients or patients with a massive MI that potentially led to their anoxia or a stroke patient. So evaluating their instability from shock in the same systematic way that y'all have previously discussed on another episode of this podcast is completely appropriate. Brain death usually results from that hypertensive crisis from autonomic storm with this really large sympathetic response. And then it's followed by hypotension from the vasodilation and vasoplasia. A lot of these donors have levofed already running from their instability during their declaration process, but there is a potential for higher graft failure in these transplanted organs that had levofed use or high doses of levofed use and donor management. So I agree with you. I pretty quickly add vasopressin like you suggested and use it as a presser, but also for that hormonal support in this population. There are two retrospective reviews that show increased organ recovery with vasopressin use. However, there are some compounding variables, such these are younger patients in those um, groups. Some of the older practice patterns um, and data suggest dopamine use, but there is no randomized controlled trial comparing dopamine in the brain dead population. So I use it for more depressed EF patients. I also make sure that the patient is adequately resuscitated early on, and this is further supported by a prospective trial from a regional donor management unit in mid-America that really did aggressive initial fluid resuscitation to decrease that presser need. Um, Really, really great input. Thank you so much for that. I think the last point that I would mention is, is, you know, whenever I'm reaching for a vasoactive, I I really think of the primary problem I'm treating, you know, and the angle and how I'm going to measure that. So of course, with any patient in shock, I'm going to reach for POCUS to assess their cardiac output you know, hemodynamic status, volume status. And, you know, that that's sort of the theme that I see in a lot of these guidelines, right? Address the hypovolemia, provide adequate resuscitation, maintain a map 60 to 65, depending on what you read, and then kind of like what your end goals are going to be, whether it's your output, um, euvolemia, or a focus assessment with focus. Awesome. And kind of the big elephant in the room is steroids, right? So what about steroids? Um, Caroline, for you, what scenarios would cause you to reach for those and what dosage are you going to give this population? Yeah, I feel like in a lot of these patients, especially the ones that are herniating and really unstable, I think there's a lot of like throw the kitchen sink at them. Um, And I I think about the days in medical school where you're like, you know, the hypothalamic, the the lemmic and pituitary axis and its systemic effects. And I think that's why severe TBI is so um, incredibly complicated because it literally touches every system really complex area for all intensivists. So I think the end goal of steroid replacement is really to kind of like help mitigate that inflammatory response that happens and all these other insults that come, you know, from, you know, sort of ischemia. So we kind of want to like replace those deficiencies in that axis or hormonal axis. Um, in addition to that, I think that really the other thing that I mentioned before was perfusing the end organs, improve donor quality and graft survival. 
And Dr. McGinney kind of, you know, refer, refer to some of these, but, you know, handful, there's a handful of RCTs and observational studies out there, but the one that I'm most familiar with, especially in our community, in acute care surgery is Dr. Salim's work, and it's been almost 20 years now on steroid and thyroid replacement in these patients. And um, most of them did use methylprednisolone, but some of them did, did use hydrocortisone. We use methylpred here. Um, it's a one-time bolus and then a drip. I know others use like divided doses. So Dr. McGinnity, what's your take on steroids? Which one do you use? Um, is it in tandem with other pharmacotherapy? Yeah, Dr. Park, I totally agree. The mixed evidence regarding this, it, regarding its benefit is definitely mixed. Um, there was one multi-center trial that increased the probability for weaning off the levofed, which we previously discussed the benefit of that. There have been other claims that have suggested an anti-inflammatory component that can help in graft viability, especially in the lungs. Um, because of this, I do use hydrocortisone 100Q8, especially in patients that are on pressors. With the lower dose, there's potentially less risk for hyperglycemia, which causes that osmotic diuresis that is sometimes difficult to control. Great. So uh, now, Dr. Bankhead, we've got a 57-year-old male um, who has an anoxic brain injury uh, that was and was um, really declared brain death four days ago. Uh, and now he only has a mild history of asthma. He's recently, him and his family would like to proceed with uh, organ donation. What are some of the key things that you're going to be thinking about when you address his event, and how are you going to manage his event? And you're going to be doing, are you going to be doing daily bronchs, BALs on this patient? How are you going to work up and make sure the lungs are healthy? Yeah, Ryan. So my my practice has truthfully really always been to minimize the vent settings to whatever is required um, by these patients and their body habitus. So for me, usually um, that's going to be low tidal volume ventilation, generally a peep of five or eight, depending on their body habitus. And then, um, you know, the lowest FiO2 that's tolerated by the patient for a SAD of 92 to hundred um, percent, which I'm sure Dr. McGinnity can tell us whether that's <laughs> a correct uh, thing to be doing or not. That's the whole reason we have her here. Um, and you know, while daily bronchoscopy wouldn't necessarily be in my armamentarium, if I'm rounding on this patient, I'm not going to make us do them. Um, if the organ donation team is asking us to the, perform them, obviously I'm happy to comply, but it certainly hasn't been in my, um, toolbox, um, for every patient. Um, I also, you know, I really don't treat empirically for pneumonia unless there's been a clinical indication, uh, to do so, or it's been proven by BAL. Um, but you know, like I said, Dr. McGinnity, I'm really curious as to what your center does and if there's any new or ongoing studies or best practice guidelines that would, um, suggest that we'd be doing otherwise. Yeah, it's interesting. There are some standardized parameters for lung donor evaluation. Um, most lungs are measured by their chest x-ray, bronchoscopy results, performance on ABGs with a focus on PDF ratios. And the ABGs, whenever they're taken for lung evaluation, are all usually measured with an FiO2 of 100% and a PEEP of 5, otherwise known as an oxygen challenge in this patient population. And then there's been a demonstration of higher lung procurement with standardized vent management. So we try to keep a low tidal volume, a six to eight mLs per ideal body weight, per keg of ideal body weight, flow rates at about 25 liters per minute, a PA CO2 of 35 to 45, an IE time of one to one, and a peak pressure less than 30 with a little bit higher peep. So peeps eight to 10. And we use pressure control recruitment maneuvers um, to increase as we generally slowly increase the PEEP uh, in patients that have lower PDF ratios than we were hoping for. 
We use other things like IPV, mucolytics, intermittent bronx, and um, diuresis to really aid in those maneuvers. And um, just as we talked about really assessing for shock in these patients, you have to look for other areas that you observe in the critically ill patients, so pneumonias, atelectasis, effusions, hemothorax, and treat those in the same manner. We have instituted protein protocols and more frequent bronchoscopies in our center to really attempt to increase those PDF ratios. And we're working on a couple of institutional retrospective reviews now that we have that two-year data to really see if there's one method that's more supported over others. We do end up giving empiric antibiotics, and then we tailor those antibiotics based on those initial BAL results. Awesome. Well, that's super helpful, and we will definitely be looking for those results to come soon. Um, so it sounds like I need to be driving up the peep and maybe giving some more empiric antibiotics. Um, okay. So let's switch gears a little bit, Dr. Dumas. Let's talk about everybody's favorite, <laughs> the renal and endocrine systems in this patient population. So now let's say the same patient is requiring two vasopressors and their urine output has been consistently, let's say two and a half cc's per kilo per hour for the last five hours. What are you giving and what is your standard approach to managing this patient? And, you know, I have to ask because our residents always ask us, right, are you going to be super strict about their sodium at this point? Um, or are you going to have a wider value that you're willing to tolerate? Yeah, that's a good question. I think to say that I have a standard approach is, is probably incorrect <laughs> just because these are patients, you know, I think that's exactly why we're having this podcast because there is so much center level variability and quite frankly, probably provider level variability too. Um, but as we've kind of discussed, I'm definitely going to now, you know, start this patient on steroids. They're in two pressure shock. Um, so I think exactly what we've, uh, we've discussed this donor needs to be maintained on steroids because I think much of what we're seeing is autonomic uh, dysregulation and dysregulation due to uh, elevated ICPs, compression and herniation that are all the result uh, of sometimes these anoxic brain injuries or these severe TBIs. Um, so really, you can anticipate further and ongoing uh, derangements with these patients. Um, so, uh, and ultimately, as we've been discussing, the goal is really to preserve graft function. So I'm going to make sure that we're repleting urinary losses with, with LR, uh, and then we're going to continue to trend BMPs really pretty aggressively, um, because obviously, uh, a, a urinary loss, a free water loss can significantly exacerbate our electrolyte abnormalities. Um, and I think a lot of these patients will already have an elevated sodium. Uh, due to their management of their their TBI uh, before uh, they had been declared uh, brain dead, and so these donors usually will probably already uh, be trending up, and we want to keep their sodiums elevated. Um, but certainly, again, these these free water losses from things like DI, diabetes, insipidus can exacerbate these abnormalities. So, you know, my question really, or our two options are, are thyroid hormones, thyroid hormone supplementation, and DDAVP. And quite frankly, you know, I've seen these used inconsistently. Um, but that's ultimately the question I have for Dr. McGinnity, uh, should we, should we, we be routinely supplementing these in our brain dead donors? Yeah, I think those are really great questions and ones that I asked when I first started doing this for sure. Uh, I was surprised to find out that diabetes insipidus is as, in as, as many as 70 to 80% of the donors, which is much higher than I had previously appreciated. And it's thought to be because the pituitary gland is compressed at the time of brain herniation that leads to the central DI, which causes the polyuria and the hypernatremia. 
So in a patient with hypotension, I immediately initiate vasopressin, which can help with the management of their DI as well. And then I add DDAVP if needed for ongoing polyuria. Um, we have also increasingly CRRT for volume and electrolyte management in these donors. And so kind of evaluating their DI in the midst of these other issues can be um, a little bit of a challenge. To speak to the thyroid replacement, there is mixed data for its use for improved cardiac output and hemodynamic stability. Anecdotally, I've definitely seen it work on some patients to decrease their presser use, but it seems to be inconsistent. We have been giving it to our donors that are on two pressors and often even start it in severe traumatic brain injury with hypotension during the herniation process prior to declaration. However, there is some evidence of decreased graft function and transplanted organs of patients that had thyroid replacement. Because of that, there's been this big push to have the data to really answer that question, does it work? Our OPO and our center just participated in a very large randomized trial of T4 versus saline. So hopefully when that results are published, that'll really better define its use. Wow, this is really great. Um, team, this has been a really great discussion. You know, I think when we set out to make this podcast, we really envisioned it being something with uh, high yield digestible uh, information that trainees and fellows and attending physicians alike can really take to the bedside uh, to really help optimize, you know, the gift of life and, and the donor gift. So um, as usual, Drs. Park and Dr. Bankhead, thank you very much uh, for joining us and being part of this podcast. Uh, and from the three of us and everyone at BTK, thank you, Dr. McGinnity. Uh, I do not want to speak for everyone, but this has certainly been uh, an awesome discussion. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your team and everything you guys are doing uh, down in San, San Antonio. Uh, thank you and dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.